Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 327. Today we're going to be talking about the rise of Nixon. We're going to be talking about the rise of Nixon as well as his uh, presidential term, how he is as president. So I'll give you a second to go on to Moodle and get the PowerPoint, and I'll give you a second to get that set up. So as we've been talking for a while now, as we've been talking for a while now, uh, the 60s were a time of conflict. They're a time of conflict. They're definitely a time of challenge to the status quo. Uh, all those various movements we've talked about, we talked about the civil rights movement, talked about the other movements. And, and as I end the other movements, as we talk about what happens in 1968 in Chicago, uh, there's a sense of backlash. There's definitely a sense of backlash. And it's not unusual that a backlash would occur. There have always been, you know, these type of responses, uh, conservative resurgences, if you will, to these type of various movements. You need to understand that not everybody in the 1960s was like a hippie or a civil rights crusader. And that goes across the board. I mean, not, you know, most young Americans weren't, most African Americans weren't, uh, a lot of women weren't involved in these various movements. Plenty of Americans felt that these movements have gone too far. You have a sense in the 60s, you'll hear people say, you know, I'm not against civil rights, I'm not against rights for women, but I think these people are going too far, or they're a front for communists. The idea that these protesters are agitators, they're trying to undermine uh, confidence within the American system because there are a whole bunch of damn dirty communists. And that really gets seen in the election of 1968, um, and the, this election has a lot of this dynamics. Uh, there's a couple of these candidates that really get into it. The one who embodies us the best is actually not Richard Nixon, but rather go over one slide. You will see George Wallace. George Wallace is the best embodiment of this example, particularly in 1968. His entire campaign in 68 was a reaction against the civil rights movement and some of these other movements that are quite popular, not popular, but well-known in the 60s. Uh, he is the former governor of Alabama. He'd been governor quite a bit. You can see in the background, he's got the Confederate flag. Uh, he is definitely a re Alabama governor. He'd been a lifelong Democrat. Uh, hard right-winger, hard right-winger. Uh, the term right-wing and conservative and Republican may be synonymous and interchangeable for some people. Those are very different concepts. Uh, George Wallace is hard to the right, uh, nationalist. Also, you have a fairly decent sense of um, populism with George Wallace. Now, his entire political career, his entire political career was based upon segregation. In fact, uh, his party is often called the Segregation Party in 1968. Um, one of his famous slogans is segregation now, segregation forever. Uh, during the height of the Civil Rights Movement, after um, Ole Miss tried to get desegregated, James Meredith tried to enroll at Ole Miss, George Wallace goes to the University of Alabama, stands in front of the gates of Alabama, and proclaims loudly and proudly that he will not let any desegregation happen at the University of Alabama. Now, he had been a Democrat for most of his political career. For most of his political career, he had been a Democrat. And he uses uh, disgust among Southern Democrats towards the leftist wing of the party to fuel his third-party run. Remember, Democrats in the South had long made up the um, bulk of the membership of the Democratic Party, but they did not make up most of the leadership. And for a long time, they felt like their votes had gone in vain. Well, perhaps not these votes had gone in gain, 
vain, but they were being taken for granted. Now, he makes a third-party run on what's known as the American Independent Party. Uh, It's officially known as the American Independent Party. Most people call it the Segregation Party, or possibly the States' Rights Party. Uh, Kind of similar to what Strom Thurmond does in 1948, the Dixiecrats, or even what... um, Theodore Roosevelt does in 1912. It's called the Progressive Party, but most people call it the Bull Moose Party. Now, you can see some of the ads. I know I'm going to have you read one of uh, Wallace's speeches. It's a pretty interesting speech. Uh, In addition to segregation, he has a very strong anti-hippie rhetoric, uh, very strong anti, not civil rights movement, but like student rights movement, really embodying this idea that the youth of America are ungrateful. A quote that he has that really embodies this is that America has been ruined by, quote, liberals, long hairs, and intellectuals, end quote. He says they have run the country for too long, really tapping into this much older anti-intellectualism, which has been involved in American politics for quite a while. You can see this going back to something like Andrew Jackson. Uh, he also coins the term welfare queen. He, he, uh, he coins the term welfare queen. He says uh, there are people who are, you know, getting pregnant and having multiple children by multiple fathers just to um, skim some money off of welfare, you know, just to you know, get, get as much as they can from the system, really embodying this anti-great society messaging. There's a lot of messaging going on that's very anti-great society. And Wallace embodies that. If you go over one side, you'll see some other things we have. Um, Cracker power, which I'm not going to say anything about that, but you can figure that out. Uh, Vote for freedom, not socialism. Wallace Wallace 68, that's actually his his convention. Uh, This idea that he is, you know, he's for America, not necessarily for uh, socialism, which, as I've mentioned last class, socialism and communism kind of became a catch-all term for anything that was deemed, quote, un-American. He also uh, critiques the hippies. He critiques the hippies. He says that they are too vulgar. He says that they are too vulgar. He says they're too profane, too much bad language. Fun little quote about that, funny little quote. Is that the only four-letter words that hippies don't know are W-O-R-K and S-O-A-P, work and soap. He says that's the only four-letter words that those damn dirty hippies don't know. And the speech that you're going to read, I have a speech of his listed on your Moodle. Uh, it is one of his speeches that he gives at a campaign rally at Madison Square Garden. At Madison Square Garden, you know, the, the basketball arena. Well, not just basketball arena. It's a, you know, it's the world's most famous arena. It's a big stadium in New York City. And basically, as you read in the speech, he goes off. He really goes off on this kind of nationalistic, you know, America is being overrun. The majority of people are uh, opposed to all this great upheaval. And although his base is in the South, he has, a, he has a national message. Like, he has an appeal to the entire country. Even though his base is in the South, he has an appeal to the entire country. Now, spoiler alert, uh, Wallace does not win. Wallace does not win. Um, as far as we can gather, his plan was maybe to split the vote enough to have a brokered election, uh, basically to have the election go to the House, and then he would wheel and deal uh, for his electoral college votes, uh, and getting a plum position and getting a plum position, maybe become secretary of state or uh, another high office within whoever's candidacy he threw his support behind. But he does carry some southern states. I believe he carries five southern states, all of which are deep southern states, Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi and Georgia. 
and all of which are states that the Democrats would have otherwise uh, carried fairly easily because these were all Democratic states. Uh, states were very much run by the Democratic Party. But as you recall from last class in 1968, the Democrats so have that big riot in um, Chicago, whatever Humphrey is picked over um, McCarthy. You, you have basically the Democrats are in a bit of disobey. But what it does show is that maybe there's going to be changes in Southern elections, in Southern politicking. Um, it was evident that the Southern Democrats are very upset with the National Party. Uh, they had been long time, I mean, honestly, since the inception of the modern Democratic Party under uh, Thomas Jefferson and really solidified under Andrew Jackson, the Southern Democrats had been the the bedrock of the Democratic electorate. And now they're like, you know what? They're taking our votes for granted. Um, you know, we, we feel alienated by this party. And maybe they might decide to switch. And you hear the term, the, 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 the switch in politics. I'll talk about it a bit more later. Uh, you know, the idea that the, the Republican and Democratic Party switch. That's a bit of oversimplification. Um, however, the electorate does change. Uh, Southern Democrats tend to switch to Republican. We'll talk about that a bit later. But the parties themselves, on a national level, they don't change too, too much. But we'll get into that later. Now, Richard Nixon capitalizes on all of this, not just in the South, but all over the country. One of the reasons that Nixon is very successful in the election of 1968 is that he is positioning himself as a moderate. The idea that he is moderate in comparison to um, brain fart, Wallace, not McGovern, that's later. Uh, in response to George Wallace, Nixon is viewed as a moderate. He's viewed as somebody who's you know to the left of crazy hard right George Wallace. He is a much more uh, palpable candidate. Uh, he had been out of politics since losing in the 1960 uh, presidential election. I, I should mention that. The last time we talked about Nixon in this class was in the election of 1960, where he loses a very close election to John Kennedy. Uh, he does try to run for governor of California in 1962. He does not win. This is not because California is uh, not a Republican state. In fact, California is a very Republican state in this time period, as evidenced by the fact that Ronald Reagan wins as a very hard conservative in 1966. But for the most part, Nixon had been biding his time. Nixon had really been biding his time uh, he's a very unlikely major politician. I will tell you that about Nixon. He's a very unlikely major politician. Uh, we're going to get into his personal foibles a bit later, but he's he's an interesting cat. Um, his entire career, if I, if I were to pick one word to describe Richard Nixon, he'd be anti-communist. Uh, Nixon really, he comes of, you know, he becomes on national notice during the Army McCarthy hearings. Um, you know, McCarthy has a meteoric fall, but Nixon stays pretty popular. He's viewed as kind of a conservative, but perhaps a more moderate conservative. Um, in fact, one of the reasons why Eisenhower picks him as vice president is because of how strong Nixon's anti-communist reputation is. Now, he's also known to be a bit of a political street fighter. Uh, wasn't afraid to use, quote-unquote, low tactics. We'll talk about this more when we talk about Watergate. Uh, a prime example of Nixon being unconventional in his tactics, if you go over one slide, is the Checkers speech. Uh, you will see Richard Nixon and Checkers right there. Um, during the 1952 campaign, during the 1952 campaign, after Eisenhower had pit, picked Richard Nixon to be his vice president, to be his running mate, 
Um, it, it came out that Nixon had a slush fund. Uh, basically, Nixon had an illegal fund filled with all sorts of illegal campaign contributions, stuff he was not using for the campaign, things he was using for personal uh, personal use. And there's a lot of a uh, lot of talk about you know is he honest? Is he is he you know is he on the level? Is he doing what people sh- you know is he doing what's right? Now, when Eisenhower hears about this, remember they're still running for office. Eisenhower's not president yet. He is disgusted. He he is angry. He's irate. He's talking about we. I need to get rid of Richard Nixon. This guy is dead weight. He's going to kill us. However, he's like, look, you know, the only reason that Nixon was added was because I need to have conservative support. I'm going to give Nixon a chance to support himself. I'm going to give Nixon a chance to defend himself. And if his defense isn't good enough, I'm going to drop him. So Nixon gives a speech, the checkers speech. I don't have it listed because it's not in the time period. But if you want to read it, it's kind of interesting. Where basically he he defends himself from the accusations in kind of hilarious ways. Uh, For instance, he talks about his wife. Uh, he talks about his wife, uh, wife Pat. Basically, he's like, oh, you know, people accuse her of having a, a fur coat. But I'm here to tell you, she only has a, quote, good Republican cloth coat. I, I just love that phrase, a good Republican cloth coat. However, the highlight of the speech is when he talks about, he's like, you know, I did take one illegal contribution, one thing that I didn't report. And it was a little black and white cocker spaniel that my daughters fell in love with. And we named him Checkers. And you can say whatever you want. I'm going to keep that dog. We're, you know, I'm not going to give away my daughter's dog. Now, what, what you notice here, this is this is just, I'm not a Nixon fan, but I, I can appreciate uh, somebody in my class the other day said that this was Nixon finessing. They basically said, you know, he wasn't lying. He was finessing or kind of being like, oh, did I take campaign attributions? Yes, I did, but look at the puppy. Look at the puppy. See, this is my legal campaign contribution. Um, it works pretty well. It works pretty well, and that's how Nixon is in the White House in 1952, but as vice president. Now, I should also mention, Nixon is not very charismatic. He is not very charismatic. We'll get into that more later with Watergate, but Nixon's not great with people. He's certainly not good with crowds. You saw that in the 1960 election where, you know, Kennedy is very calm, cool, collected, conventionally handsome. Nixon's just kind of awkward. He just he doesn't really seem to know how to get along with people. But the language that he uses in 1968 is very effective. Go over one side. You will see a phrase that um, actually I believe Wallace comes up with, but Nixon perfects. And that's the phrase law and order. Law and order. When we talk about law and order, which actually if you want to get technical, um, Warren G. Harding uses for the first time in 1920, but uh, you know that happens in Republican politics. They kind of take each other's uh, campaign slogans. For instance, "Make America Great Again." Like, <laughs> Donald Trump got that from Ronald Reagan in 1980. Anyway, basically, law and order is pretty much what what uh, Wallace was saying, but uh, not as extreme. You know, the idea that Nixon is positioning himself as the moderate, like you know, hey, Wallace has got some decent ideas, but my God, is he going off the rails? Nixon says what this country needs is law and order. I, I would greatly encourage you right about now to go onto Moodle, click where it says Nixon campaign ads, and so you can watch some of this. Because Nixon is showing a very, very grim view of America as is. The idea that, you know, there's, there's chaos, we're on the edge of disaster. But, uh, you know, and he's like, he even is insistent, you know, I'm not against people campaigning for civil rights. But what I am against is unrest, you know, people being violent. He claims to speak for what he calls the quote-unquote silent majority. I uh, definitely know that phrase because it gets used a lot in modern politics, the idea of the silent majority. 
He says the majority of the people in America, they're not out arguing on the streets. They're not leading protests. They're too busy, you know, raising their kids, working their jobs, uh, you know, paying their taxes. And they're not, they're not bad people. They're not against civil rights. They're not against equality. They're just against the rhetoric. Read his nomination speech. I also include that for you in Moodle. I would strongly encourage you to read his nomination speech. Uh, ba- basically, compare that with what Wallace is saying. In fact, uh, maybe in your responses, uh, uh, talk about that. Talk about how basically, you know, the, the the language that Wallace uses is much harsher than what Nixon uses. Yeah, and he also taps into the Chicago riots. He really taps into the Chicago riots of 1968. We we talked about that last time. He basically, is like, look, this is an example. You know, these are these young, ungrateful, you know, people. The the Democratic Party. They, you know, can you truly expect them to leave the country? They can't even leave their own party. It's all falling apart. Now, another key phrase Nixon does, which is a harbinger of things to come for the Republican Party, is what's known as the Southern Strategy. Uh, Nixon brings in his Southern Strategy. Now, this is a very, I don't want to say controversial, but it's a very misunderstood concept. Because what Nixon is doing, Nixon is trying to appeal to Southern whites who felt betrayed by the Democratic Party because of civil rights and a whole host of feeling overlooked or feeling like their votes were being taken for granted. But there's a very close tightrope that Nixon is trying to bridge here. Because how do you appeal to this new group? How do you appeal to uh, Southern Democrats? Remember who Lyndon B. Johnson once said, we've just lost the South for a very long time after the Civil Rights Act was passed. How do you appeal to these people without alienating black voters? Um, Up until this time period, most African-Americans who could vote, particularly in the North, voter Republican. They're not the largest demographic. They're not a, they're not a very large electorate, but they're, they're a stable electorate for the Republican Party nonetheless in this time period. Uh, granted, one that has been lessening, for instance, uh, Jackie Robinson, he of desegregating baseball fame, had been a longtime Republican until the election of 1964 with Goldwater when he's like, you know what, I, I nope, I'm not, I'm not with Goldwater. I, I can't do Goldwater. This is too much for me. But Nixon's still trying to keep the black vote together for the Republican Party. Nixon, one of the crazy, weird things about him, uh, just one of these fun trivia things, he's a lifelong member of the NAACP. Um, I don't know how active of a member he is, but he has a lifelong membership. So how does one appeal to that? Well, how Nixon does this, how he appeals to Southern Democrats without alienating uh, the black voters with the Republican Party, is changing the language. Uh, Nixon never straight up says, I am against the civil rights movement. He never says that. He never says, I'm against people, you know, arguing for their rights or trying or dissenting. He never says that. What he does say is like, you know, I'm not for civil rights. Sorry, I'm not against civil rights. But what I am against is big government mandating these things. He's against big government enforcement. You know, he also says things like, hey, you know, um, you know, what's more important than civil rights. Uh, Jobs. You know, if people start getting jobs and the economy gets better, if more people are working, you know, then we're not going to have all this upheaval. Then, you know, people are going to be, you know, that's the greatest civil right you can have is having a job, that sort of shtick. Now, uh, this is still a very contentious issue. And, and I should mention, Nixon never wins the South, at least in this election. He, he does bonkers good in 1972. In fact, he gets one of the largest electoral college victories we have, period. 
But he is showing that maybe Republicans can win in the South. Now, this is perfected by Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is the first Republican to really get the South. Now, I'll mention this again. Uh, this is part of this idea that the parties switch, which is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, what is a bit accurate, though, is that demographic shift, and particularly electric shift in the South, which beforehand the South had been solidly Democratic. Now it's not as solidly Democratic. It's not solid Republican yet, but there are definitely some, uh, some kinks in the armor. You know, there's some there, there there's some there's some light coming out of this, as though maybe the southern wall, the solid south, might fall. And this is really demonstrated by the electoral college map. Oh, I should mention that I should mention actually this is very important. Uh, the main thing that Nixon wins upon though is his quote secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, the Vietnam War is a very contentious issue in this time period. It's the reason why Johnson pulls out of the race, why he says he's not going to run again. Uh, while he's on the campaign trail, he never directly states what his plan to end the war in Vietnam is, but he is very insistent that it's not going to abandon South Vietnam. He's like, you know, we're going to keep our allies. We're, we're going we're gonna to have peace. We're going to, you know, get out of there, send our boys back home. He won't say exactly what it is. We'll talk about it a bit later about what it actually is. But what's kind of ironic is even though the Vietnam War is very unpopular in 1968, and actually it's not a majority, but still it's a definitely growing in unpopularity. Definitely growing in unpopularity. Uh, the general public is becoming less and less enamored of the Vietnam War. All of the major candidates, all of the major candidates for president are actually uh, in support of the Vietnam War. Uh, Humphrey is in support of the war. Nixon's in support of the war. And also Wallace. Wallace is actually in favor of escalating the war. Uh, so it's kind of, kind of interesting. Now you can go over one side. You'll see the Electoral College map. It's a very interesting map. It's a very, if you look at this in a, in, a, in a vacuum, this seems like a very strange map. Because Humphrey is a pretty good campaigner. In fact, Hubert Humphrey is a very good campaigner. He's a better campaigner than Nixon was. Remember, Nixon is never comfortable with crowds. Humphrey's way better with crowds. And he actually comes pretty close to getting the popular vote. Uh, Nixon only gets a popular vote by about 500,000 votes, which I know it sounds like a lot of votes, but when you're talking about electoral, you know, presidential elections, that's fairly narrow. However, it is the United States of America. Popular vote does not count. Uh, Nixon gets the Electoral College fairly handedly. Uh, fairly handedly, you can see he gets 301 Electoral College votes. Uh, Humphrey gets 90, 191 Electoral College votes, uh, really bo bolstered by things like uh, New York State, Pennsylvania, also Texas. He gets Texas for the Democrats. This is one of the last times that Texas is going to go all Democrat. Um, he, um, but Nixon, however, Nixon has a ton of votes, you know, gets big population states like California and Illinois and Ohio. But I want you to notice is the Deep South. I mentioned earlier that five deep Southern states go for Wallace. They go for this American Independent Party. And the idea that all five of these states previously had been solid Southern states, very solid Southern states, shows that maybe things are going to be different. It, it kind of signals an ill wind uh, for the Democratic Party within the South. And if you go over one side, now we get to President Nixon. Now Richard Nixon as uh, president. He is now president. And although he campaigns as a conservative, he, he campaigns as a conservative, a lot of what he does in office is a bit more liberal than expected. All right, It's a bit more liberal than expected, a bit more big government than what he campaigned on. Uh, probably the best instance of this is in education. 
Uh, during his campaign, Nixon claims he is going to give control of election back to the states. Uh, that's still a very contentious issue. You know, who who is the one ultimately in, who decides for public education? Should it be the national government? Should it be the individual states? So once Nixon comes into office, he claims, yeah, I'm going to give the control back to the states, but, a big old but, Washington is going to fund uh, education in blocks and certain standards have to be upheld. Basically, Nixon says, okay, yeah, I'm going to give you control of the uh, education. However, if you want federal money, which, by the way, all school districts desperately want federal money because it's kind of expensive to run a school district and pretty much all states and districts desperately desire uh, federal money to help out with that. He says, basically, if you want federal money, you have to have upheld certain standards. So he's like, hey, you can have your own independent standard states. Uh, good luck raising the taxes for that. You know, if you can pay for it, you can do that. Uh, most states do not go along with that. He, he calls this idea the new federalism. He says, I want the federal government to be smaller and have less control, but here's the irony. To enable to do that, presidential power is going to increase. All right? That seems like a paradox. It seems hypocritical. Um, this is kind of a change in U.S. history. Um, yes, the growth of the federal government and power and authority, that's been going on for a while. I mean, you could argue that's been happening since, oh gosh, my stars, since the, the Federalists back in Washington's time, or, you know, in, in more easy ones, the Civil War, or during the Great Depression, the New Deal. But that's the growth of the federal government, the federal government, which most people claim is to be against. What Nixon is doing is he's saying, yeah, we're going to have a smaller federal government, but what he's not saying is, and able to do that, I get more power. Not I necessarily, but the, the president gets more power. Still, a lot of Nixon's changes to, uh, to critics seem like old federalism. Uh, critics on the right, I should say. Uh, for instance, if you go over one slide, in 1970, Richard Nixon creates the Environmental Protection Act, the EPA. Um, he also signs the Clean Air Act into law, which uh, does a lot to cut down on pollution. Now, this seems, oh my gosh, this seems kind of crazy. Uh, also, I should mention he's president in 1969 when we land on the moon, which is neat. You know, hey, we landed on the moon. So, like, there's a plaque with Richard Nixon's signature on it on the moon. That's, that's probably, if you ever get asked on Jeopardy, who's the only president to have a, their signature on the moon, the answer is Richard Nixon. So, he has the EPA and the Clean Air Act. Um, he is wary of environmentalists, though. He is w wary of environmentalists. He feels that they are anti-business and anti-prosperity. Um, so it is, you're better wondering why does he do this or how does this embody, you know, embody what he says? You know, he's arguing for less government and he's making all these big new uh, governmental agencies. Well, the thing is, it's not a very well-funded agency. That's kind of the way around it. Nixon starts it, but he barely gives it any funding. It barely has any funding whatsoever, and it's pretty much ineffective. Uh, the Clean Air Act does a lot for pollution, but the EPA has very limited ability to enforce this stuff. They, they don't have a lot of resources, and you desperately need resources and able to have the reach to impact this sort of thing. Now, it could be argued, in fact, I'm arguing right now, that most of what Nixon does in terms of environmentalism is mainly to get uh, liberals off of his back so he can focus on what he wants. He, he's like, look, if I give them a couple carrots and, uh, you know, barely fund them, I can get them to shut up. It's the idea that, oh, hey, you know, oh, you say you're for, uh, you know, the environment. Well, I actually did something about it, even though he's it's mainly an agency in name. That's about it. 
However, what comes up early pretty quick is Vietnam. Vietnam takes pretty center stage fairly early. You can go over one slide. Uh, he announces his secret plan in Vietnam. Pretty much what it turns to is what he calls Vietnamization. Vietnamization is basically reducing the number of American troops and increasing the number of Vietnamese troops, uh, uh, South Vietnamese troops. He's basically saying, hey, you know, us in America, we've done our job, we've done our duty, so we're going to reduce the number and we're going to increase the number of South Vietnamese troops. If this sounds familiar, the U.S. tries to do this in Iraq, and we tried to do that in Afghanistan, um, to, to varying uh, degrees of success. But that's what Nixon claims he's doing. It, it basically, he is uh, negotiating, well, not even negotiating. Well, he is negotiating, but the general public don't know that yet. But even though he announces that, he's also keenly aware of what's going on in Vietnam itself. He's keenly aware that the North Vietnamese, they're running a ramshot around Laos and Cambodia. They have the Viet Cong have camps everywhere. And basically, you know, the, the Viet Cong are crossing into Laos and Cambodia. And although the United States is told explicitly, we need to just say in South Vietnam, because to do anything else would be an act of war, and it was a whole bunch of things that, you know, we were only invited into Vietnam. We can only say in South Vietnam because we were only invited by the South Vietnamese government. Uh, Nixon orders the secret bombing of Laos and Cambodia. Uh, basically, he does not tell the American people about this. He pretty much straight up lies to the American people about, are we bombing Laos and Cambodia? Because everybody else in the world knows it. Everybody else in the world knows it. Uh, for instance, the Russians know it. The Russians know we're bombing Vietnam. Uh, the, the Vietnamese, both South and North Vietnamese, and the Viet Cong, they're, they're keenly aware that we're bombing in Laos and Cambodia. Uh, the Chinese, the Chinese who are also involved, they know that we're bombing in Cambodia. Uh, the soldiers, the ones who are doing the bombing, and also soldiers in general, uh, know that we're bombing Cambodia. And the Cambodians sure as hell know they're getting bombed. So pretty much um, the only people who don't know that we're bombing Cambodia are the, are, are the Americans. And when word of this comes out, when basically word of this uh, kind of leaks out, when it comes out, no, 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 the United States is bombing Cambodia, even though that's viewed as too aggressive, too warlike, Cambodia is not part of Vietnam, they're theoretically a separate country, it's viewed as way too aggressive, there is a string of protests. There's a string of new protests, including, if you go over one slide, Kent State. Uh, Kent State is a small regional college in Ohio, actually kind of akin to Nichols, actually has a very similar student population to Nichols. Anyway, uh, there is a protest one day of students basically protesting the war in Vietnam, uh, the local National Guard is called in. The local National Guard has come in, was called in. And even though the, the, the student protesters are unarmed, and also I should mention, not everybody protesting is a college student. For instance, the girl kneeling in the picture, she's actually a high schooler. But still, uh, you know, the, the soldiers, uh, it, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, he said, she said. But I'll tell you what I know. Uh, the crowd gets a bit rowdy, and the soldiers open fire into the crowd, killing four students. This happens on May 4th, 1970. Happens to be my dad's 20th birthday. He, he was not there, I should mention, but he said it was very much a damper on his birthday hearing about this because he was in college, and he's like, oh, man, they're killing students. Uh, this looks really bad for the United States for obvious reasons. I should also mention... Um, a couple, about a couple of days later, a couple of weeks, not even, it's not even a month later, but a couple of days, I think about a week or two later, uh, at Jackson State in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, an HBCU, uh, two students are similarly killed by police for protesting the war. 
And this looks really bad for everybody. This looks bad for the war effort. This looks bad for, you know, Nixon, who, you know, he, he's promising law and order. And now, you know, the United States is, you know, shooting its own citizens. You know, these are unarmed students. And then they got fired upon. Uh, people are understandably upset about this. And I should also mention uh, morale is not great with the U.S. troops themselves. Um, they're they're seeing kind of all they work for come to naught. Uh, if you read, you know, if you if you talk to Vietnam veterans or if you read their stories, you see a lot of frustration about like we did all this good work and it came to nothing. You know, we 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 kind of betrayed the country, we betrayed America, but we also betrayed our Vietnamese allies. Um, you know, they, they feel that like you know we're we're being booed and. Um, it's apocryphal that you know soldiers are coming back and getting spat upon. Uh, there's no documented case of that happening. However, I can tell you there are there is not as much. Um, I hesitate to use the word patriotism, but uh, they're not getting as warm of a welcome as those from uh, like um, World War II were getting. You know, it's the, the, you have a sense of frustration from Viet, uh, from you know U.S. soldiers in Vietnam. Vietnam veterans who are like, hey, you know, they're they're booing us for doing what our our fathers and grandfathers got cheered for in World War II. Uh, Druggy use gets pretty high as a way of cope. Uh, they, you know, the old trope. Whenever I was a kid, was like, you know, the 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 drugged out, bugged out Vietnam veteran who's just a bum now, you know, on the street. Uh, drug use is kind of high. A lot of soldiers get introduced to drugs on Vietnam. Uh, for instance, about one-sixth of all uh, U.S. troops in Vietnam were regular heroin users, which is, uh, yeah, it's not a good look. And it, it's starting to look even worse for Nixon in that regard. So definitely not a win for Nixon. Uh, still, if you go over one slide, um, Nixon leads upon his career as an anti-communist for some of his most dramatic changes. Um what Nixon does in the Cold War is remarkable. I mean, I am not a Nixon fan. You're never going to hear me be like, hooray for Richard Nixon. But I will admit, I'll give credit where credit is due, what Nixon is able to do in the um, internationally for the Cold War is pretty much something only Nixon could do. Like, Truman and the early Cold Warriors see communism as a monolithic entity. Right, they see communism, you know, no matter what country it's in, as monolithic. It could be China, it could be Russia, it could be Cuba. It's all communist. It's all a big monolith. They're all together. But the reality is, despite the fears of 1948, uh, Russia and China never got along very well. They never got along very well. Like, in fact, in 1969, the Chinese People's Liberation Army starts having. Skirmishes with the Soviet Red Army along their common border. Uh, Russia and China have a big long border, and basically, you're having two communist countries kind of uh, having skirmishes with each other. And Nixon is like, maybe these two sides could possibly be played against each other. He said, maybe, just maybe, we could do something about this. Maybe we could do something about this. Maybe I could play China and Russia off of each other. And so thus was born a very important phrase, détente. Uh, détente is a French word. Détente is a French word. Uh, it means easing, basically. It means easing of tensions, um, you know, as a, uh, you, know, you know, easing political, you know, tension, 
I just said that already. Lowering hostilities. Basically, Nixon's like, maybe we can tone down the Cold War rhetoric. Uh, The idea is, you know, Nixon is now going to treat communist countries as separate rivals, as that they're treatable with. He's like, you know, maybe I can play them off against each other. Maybe I can ease the tension. Maybe I could ratchet down their rhetoric. And and I mentioned, only Nixon could have gotten away with this because of his long career being an anti-communist. Like anybody else, if anybody else would have tried this or been as soft, quote unquote, they'd have been called as soft on communist. You know, easing any tensions, you know, kind of ratcheting down the, the, the violence and the aggression. Any other president would have been deemed, oh my God, you're anti-communist. Sorry, you're, you're, you're pro-communist. But because it's Richard Nixon, because he's Mr. Anti-Communist, it cannot be viewed as being pro-communist because Richard Nixon's doing it. Uh, the analogy I use in my classes is somebody like The Rock. Uh, this is a horrible example. Maybe you can give me a better one. Hey, make a better one in, in, in your responses. Uh, the Rock is sometimes viewed as like a paragon of masculinity. Anything The Rock does is deemed this as masculine. The Rock cannot do anything that's wimpy or feminine. So just imagine one day The Rock comes in with like painted fingernails and a ball gown. And people be like, well, you know what? For anybody else, it might be feminine, but The Rock's doing it. So therefore, it must be masculine. That's what Nixon's able to do. Nixon is able to really ratchet down the tension with a lot of these countries, a lot of these communist countries, a lot of Cold War countries, because he is Richard Nixon, he could ratchet it down, where pretty much anybody else would have to ratchet it up. Now, Nixon's partner in all this, if you go over one slide, is one Henry Kissinger. Uh, Henry Kissinger is somehow still alive. I cannot believe Henry Kissinger is still alive. I mean, look at that. In that picture, he looks to be in his like late 60s, I suppose, maybe his early 70s. Uh, Henry Kissinger, he is originally from Germany. Uh, he comes over during like the rise of Hitler. Uh, you know, he comes over to it. Let's see, he is 98 years old. I just looked it up. He was born in 1923. So he is barely in his, like he's in his 40s in that picture. He, he looks way older. No offense, Henry Kissinger, but he looks a gazillion years old. Uh, let me do my horrible Henry Kissinger impression. Henry Kissinger was always known for having very low voice, you know, Mr. President, blah, 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 head drumming accent, low, low, low voice. Anyway, uh, he is Richard Nixon. He starts out as his national security advisor and later secretary of state. And Kissinger is really Nixon's partner with all this. You know, when it comes to detente, when it comes to Cold War rhetoric, uh, Kissinger is the one behind it. Now, Kissinger is also the one who talked about, like, hey, we should start bombing Cambodia. So, you know, uh, Kissinger is still a very, uh, very controversial figure. So in 1971, uh, Kissinger takes a diplomatic trip to Pakistan. He takes a diplomatic trip to Pakistan. This is not unusual. You know, he's Secretary of State. That's, that's not unusual at all for the Secretary of State, you know, our, our foreign policy uh, point man, to take a trip, uh, a foreign trip. And it's also not unusual to go with reporters. It's not unusual to go with reporters. So while Kissinger is in Pakistan, one night he's like, oh, I'm sorry, reporters. I, I'm feeling kind of sick. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm not feeling good at all. I'm, you know, yeah, I've got indigestion or something. I'm not, I'm not doctor sick, but, you know, don't, don't, we're, we're canceling everything today. You know, don't worry about me. Don't follow me. I'm, ugh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just sick. I'll be on the toilet all day. It's a lie. It's a fake. Um, he actually flies to China. He actually goes to China to meet with Mao Zedong and other communist leaders, other Chinese uh, leaders. 
Now, it's one of the first times that the United States has recognized China, like the People's Republic of China, Communist China, as a country since Taiwan, which is almost 20 years old by this point. Uh, you know, the Taiwan, you know, basically Taiwan becoming part of the, uh, you know, Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese nationalists fleeing to Taiwan. That happened over 20 years by this point. And, you know, China had been kind of a sore spot for the United States. But, hey, um, you know, basically now the Chinese are willing to deal with the United States. The United States is admitting that. And uh, Nixon claims this is a major foreign policy victory for us to do that. Uh, there's talk of maybe something else happening because if you go over one slide, this really sets up Nixon going to China. That That is the big coup here. Uh, Nixon is able to go to China. Uh, this freaks the Russians out. This freaks the Russians out a lot because they fear the U.S. and China would make an alliance which would be against them. Remember, Russia and China, despite being both communist, don't have really great... Uh, don't really have great uh, relations. Also, uh, Republicans back home are not that happy because it seems that Richard Nixon has sold out Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, which is uh, theoretically an independent government, uh, you know, it, you know, basically Nixon's like, okay, maybe the Chinese have a, a right over Taiwan. Uh, it gets kind of... Eh. I'm not going to get into U.S.-Taiwan Chinese policy. It's very complicated. But just say that, uh, you know, Taiwan had been a very long-time ally of the U.S. since its inception. And some Republicans feel that Nixon is selling out China. Sorry, is selling out uh, our Taiwanese interests for China. Still, this is a big win for the foreign policy of the United States. I, I cannot iterate this. Uh, if you go over one more slide, you'll see another fun picture. There's Richard Nixon at the Great Wall of China with his with his first lady. You have a lot of photo ops of, you know, Nixon doing all sorts of great things. Uh, you know, not great, th- great in the sense of like, oh, yeah, he's going to the Great Wall. Look, he's in the Forbidden City. Look, there he's eating chopsticks, that sort of thing. Oop, look, he is. He's, he's drinking tea with Chairman Mao. A lot of political theater about this. Uh, there's also talk of the, you know, maybe have a few token deals. Uh, the two countries decide to exchange embassies, which is a pretty big deal in diplomatic world. You know, once you have an embassy, uh, you can have more regular diplomatic relations. It seems very important for not getting too warlike, that sort of thing. So as, as big of a deal as this was, the main reason Nixon goes to China, however, is to set up another visit, go over one slide, to when Richard Nixon goes to Moscow. Basically, what Nixon was hoping to do was get the Soviets a bit jealous. Get the Soviets a bit jealous uh, demand their own meeting with the U.S. to stop them from getting too buddy-buddy with China. It totally works. It totally works. Only three months after China, Nixon goes to Moscow in May of 1972. Uh, there he meets with the uh, Soviet Secretary General, which is, uh, by this time, it's now uh, Brezhnev, who, he's not really too important, you don't really need to know him, but just know he meets with the, he meets with the head of the Soviet Union, which is something... Uh, God, an American president had not done in uh, Russia since, my God, Stalin, perhaps, with FDR at Yalta, I'm thinking, maybe? Yeah, it's been a while. And while in Russia, Nixon signs SALT, uh, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, or SALT, limiting the number of nuclear weapons that can be built and tries to stop the spread of even more. Once again, this is something only Richard Nixon could have gotten away with. Uh, Any other president saying, hey, let's reduce the number of nuclear weapons with the Russians, 
It'd be viewed as, oh my God, he's being too soft on the Russians. But Nixon's able to do this. Uh, what does Russia get in exchange? Uh, well, a big thing they get is food, particularly grain. Uh, Russia, the Soviets had had a long time problem with feeding their country. Um, grain and, and crop failures are fairly common. So basically, uh, Nixon's like, hey, we have a lot of grain and food in the United States. Cough, cough, Iowa. Cough, cough, everywhere else in the Midwest. Uh, he's like, look, we will give you food for cost. Um, you know, basically, we're not going to give you food, but we'll let you buy it at cost from Iowa. I think Salt said like one fourth of all the grain and the, of, that the U.S. produces would go to Russia for cost, for cost. So once again, this actually makes uh, farmers happy because you know they're getting a pretty good client. Yes, it's for cost, but still, you know, it's 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 a it's a big time client, absolutely. Brezhnev would actually go to the U.S. in 1973. He'd even go to the White House. Uh, yes, we've had various Soviet premiers come to the United States, most famously Khrushchev coming to the United Nations and going to Iowa, not being allowed to go to Disneyland. However, they kept him very far away from the White House. However, because Nixon's able to do this in 73, hey, Brezhnev goes to the White House. Now, is this political theater? Absolutely. You know, is there anything too solid being done? Not too much. But still, does it look that maybe the Cold War is possibly going down? Maybe, you know, maybe not everybody's going to die. You know, maybe tensions are ratcheting down. And Nixon is able to do this for his faults, and I'm about to get into them. Nixon is able to change the tone of the Cold War. He's able to ratchet down the tension quite a bit, and no other president would have done that. Uh, however, the real issue of the government slide is the Vietnam War. Real issue to do is Vietnam, and Nixon had been in negotiations, secret negotiations with the North Vietnamese for quite a while. Uh, for quite a while. Um, Henry Kissinger had been meeting uh, for a long time with uh, the North Vietnamese, various leaders. Uh, Ho Chi Minh had died by this time. Ho Chi Minh dies in 1969, so fairly early in Nixon's presidency, Ho Chi Minh dies, but you, know, you still have the Viet Cong around. And North Vietnam really wants to unify the country. North Vietnam is like, hey, we want to unify the country. And they felt that the South was weak in the spring of 1972. They felt Southern Vietnam was weak in 1972. Um, the U.S. had been reducing the number of troops for a while. So the Viet Cong was actually in a holding pattern. Uh, they're mainly delaying the peace talks, all right? They're mainly delaying the peace talks. Basically, they want the United States to completely pull out um, you know, they're, they're, they're just basically waiting for the U.S. to get even more disastrous. So the best of the early uh, discussions, the peace talks that the North Vietnamese have are not in good faith. Nixon tries to have an offensive, but it's beaten back. So Nixon, you know, he's fresh off of uh, his visits to China and Russia. It's pretty hopeful that the two big communist countries are going to settle you know, you know, basically, they could pressure North Vietnam into a settlement. The idea that it's like, look, that we're going to get China and Russia to kind of lean upon North Vietnam not to invade South Vietnam. Uh, the agreement finally comes in January of 1973 after the so-called Christmas bombing. Uh, the Christmas bombing is basically another round of bombing in North Vietnam to try to take out the Viet Cong. It's also done to show that Nixon is not being solved in Vietnam. Uh, the, the, basically, the peace talks, you can see Henry Kissinger shaking his hand with his North Vietnamese counterpart. Um, 
the agreement pretty much keeps the country as it was, kind of like Korea. Pretty much keeps North North and South Vietnam as separate entities. And it has the North Vietnam promise never to take over South Vietnam in the main city of Saigon. Now, does North Vietnam really want to do this? No. (laughs) No, they don't. Uh, But what's really evident is that the United States had lost interest in protecting um, South Vietnam, really lost interest in getting involved in the war. So there's little surprise or outcry when two years after this, in 1975, uh, when North Vietnam invades South Vietnam, if you go down one side, you'll see the fall of Saigon, uh, kind of a tumultuous time whenever North Vietnam takes over South Vietnam, kind of akin to the, uh, the Taliban taking over Afghanistan after the U.S. leaves, except the Taliban was way quicker than the North Vietnamese were. Uh, the North Vietnamese take over Saigon. What you have here is the American embassy, uh, one of the last helicopters going out, basically, you know, South Vietnamese who had worked with the U.S. Uh, for a while or had been translators. Uh, they were looking to get out. A lot of them do get out. A lot of them do get out. I-, I should definitely, definitely mention a lot of South Vietnamese do get out. But a good number don't get out. A lot of them are kept in South Vietnam, which gets taken over by North Vietnam. It's, quote, unquote, unified. Uh, Saigon is renamed Ho Chi Minh City after Ho Chi Minh. As I mentioned, he had died in 1969. Um, it's only called Ho Chi Minh City by the government. Like all the Vietnamese people I know, like people from Vietnam, nobody really calls it Ho Chi Minh City. Like the government will, but uh, generally most people still, kill, still call it Saigon. Um, like I said, so, some Vietnamese do settle in the United States. Well, in fact, there's a very decent sized community that settled around South Louisiana. In fact, the uh, first uh, congressperson of Vietnamese descent in the United States actually is from New Orleans. So there you go. But in a bigger sense, no two ways around it, uh, the U.S. had not won this war. Uh, The U.S. definitely did not win this war. You have a lot of American soldiers who died seemingly for nothing. Uh, Unlike Korea, you know, to this day, South Korea is still, you know, not communist. Um, South Vietnam goes communist. Uh, This really gives America a complex. Um, Some could argue the, the scars of Vietnam, kind of the mental block that comes after Vietnam, is still around for America and the American military. Because, you know, despite being way bigger, having way weapons, and spending a ton of money and a ton of American lives, we were not able to stop a country from going communist. You know, no matter the money we spent, whatever, we were unable to do that. And that, that is kind of a kind of an albatross around Nixon's neck. Still, if you go over one more slide, Nixon, he does a lot in his first term to change the tone of the Cold War. Uh, Nixon had done a lot in foreign policy, and I should mention, it looks like he's going to get an easy victory in 1972. It looks like he's going to easy victory in 1972, which I should mention, he wins in record numbers. He gets one of the highest electoral, I believe it's the highest electoral college vote in history. Uh, He gets like 500 and something electoral college votes. Nixon looks dominant. You know, it looks like he is on top of the world. Uh, yeah, he has some foibles. Yeah, Vietnam doesn't end so great, but he's had some very big successes in terms of China and Russia. And yet, two years later, it all comes crashing down. You know, within two years, Richard Nixon goes from winning one of the biggest electoral colleges in history to being one of the most unpopular presidents we've ever had and still viewed very poorly by most Americans. How does this happen? I'll talk about it next class. So for History 327, this is Dr. Stuart Tully telling you about Richard Nixon.